0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy, and as always, I want to thank everybody for their continued support of the little podcast that could. And as you're listening to this, I am probably halfway into my nine and a half hour drive from Cape Coral, Florida to Fort Morgan, Alabama. Because this is the weekend we have been amping and promoting for, well, a year now. Uh, it was a year ago, this time last year. Hence, a year ago. That we're in Fort Morgan, Alabama for the 75th anniversary of the Peleliu. Actually, nay, that's this weekend. Uh, it was a year ago, this weekend, we did the 75th anniversary of the Tarawa landings. And this year, we are commemorating the Battle of Peleliu. You guys have heard about it. So we're not going to talk too much about it because it's happening now. So if you're not on your way listening to this, you've missed the boat, you've missed the ride, but that doesn't mean you can't join us next year, but there'll be more information on that. And as always, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT services for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in businesses large and small, laptop repair, computer repair, tablet repair, wireless network footprint expansion, two-form authentication, online backups, online antivirus protection. You uh, have a need, they can help you out. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And as always, if you don't live in Southwest Florida, as long as your internet works, they can help you remotely. So give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And while you're out on the internet, Please feel free to stop by wtspworldwar2.com and you know the deal. Please uh support the show by using the Amazon links, sign up for Patreon, buy a t-shirt. All the money goes to help bring uh better equipment and better content to you. And um once again, I just I want to thank everybody for your continued support. I know I sound like a broken robot. Um I got robots on the mind. I I've been watching Westworld like every night for the last 4 days, so <laughs> I'm just all over the place. Um, it's Halloween night, so happy Halloween! I went out and took the kid out trick or treat, and I think we did two miles. She got a metric ton of candy. She's super happy. I feel sorry for the teachers tomorrow I have to deal with all these kids hopped up on candy, but hey, that's not my problem because once again, right now I am on the road for a nine and a half hour drive. And please, if you have like-minded friends who are into World War II, um, into history, into living history, whether they're reenactors or what have you, please, please, please. Share our podcast with your friends. Best way to grow a podcast is through word of mouth and to share our links on uh, all your social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please go to youtube.com and look for the Digital 410 channel. We have a lot of videos coming up and I hope to have finally to release the um, video I shot out at the National Museum for the Pacific War. I actually got to shoot uh, some intro videos this week to go into that because when I did that video... I was a one-man show, and um, I, as I'm editing the video, I discovered I need some stuff to finish it um, because it was the first video, because I didn't have a film crew with me, and I'm doing everything, and it was a busy weekend. I didn't have the time to sit down and get all the material I needed, and so as I'm editing it together, I realize I'm missing stuff. So I'm going to shoot a few things this weekend so I can wrap that video up and get that up on YouTube. If you haven't seen the video I did, my review on the uh, Air Venturi M1 carbine air rifle, go check that out. Um, put a lot of effort into that. I really enjoy it. But uh, enough with me, and uh, on with the show. Spam was introduced by Hormel in 1937. The product was intended to increase the sales of pork shoulder, which wasn't very popular at the time. Hormel claims the meaning of the name is known only by a small circle of former Hormel food executives but popular beliefs are that the name is an abbreviation for Spiced Ham, Spare Meat, or Shoulder of Pork and Ham. Another popular explanation is SPAM is actually an acronym standing for Specially Processed American Meat or Specially Processed Army Meat. Due to the difficulties of delivering fresh meat to the front during World War II, Spam became an ubiquitous part of the United States soldiers' diet. Some jokingly referred to Spam as ham that didn't pass its physical or meatloaf without basic training. By the war's end, over 150 pounds of Spam had been purchased by the United States military. During World War II and the occupations that followed, Spam was introduced into Guam, Hawaii, Okinawa, and the Philippines as well as other islands in the Pacific. As consequences of World War II's rationing and the Lend-Lease Act, Spam also gained prominence in the United Kingdom. In addition to increasing production for the United Kingdom, Hormel also expanded output as part of the Allies' aid to the similarly beleaguered Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev once declared, without Spam we wouldn't have been able to feed our army. Throughout the war, countries ravaged by conflict and faced with strict food rationings came to appreciate the value of Spam. And as sometimes we often do here at the What's the Skeletal Butt Podcast is uh, we go a little bit outside the realm of World War II, but we always keep World War II in our mirrors and in the theme of the show. Our next guest is not a living historian. She's not an author. She's not known for anything having to do with World War II, but, um, you know, as often happens in life, you find yourself in cool places that have history to it, and that's what our next guest, Katie Morris, has discovered. Now Katie, uh first things first, what do you do professionally?
0: Uh, I'm a professional photographer. I do kids, I do underwater, I do real estate like anything anyone wants me to do
1: but the underwater stuff I know you have a passion for marine life, and that's kind of your your secondary thing, not really profession, but you know you you do know quite a bit when it comes to marine biology and marine life and so I'm sure being able to take your passion for photography and adding it onto the uh, passion for scuba diving and all things marine, that probably helps make your day feel like you're not working so much as enjoying and finding a way to, um, you know, market your, your hobbies and your passion.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's my kind of refuge I go to. Um, you know, if I've got a couple of weeks where I'm just slammed with work, I'll just grab my uh, underwater rig and um, a kayak, and I'll just kind of go around Fort Myers Beach and try to take some photos. Um, you know, it's, I love adventure. It kind of gets me out of the, you know, day to day business of just whatever, boring, (laughs) boring everyday life stuff.
1: And out of all the places you've gone diving and, uh, shot some underwater photography, where are some of the, your most memorable and or favorite places to go?
0: Uh, definitely hands down. Palau is the best diving I've ever done in my entire life. It's incredible. We did, um, we were there when they, there was a lot of, uh, spawning action going on. Um, it was in the spring and, uh, they just started doing these new dives where they'll take you out to see, um, the spawning aggregations of different fish. So we got to see the bumphead parrotfish spawning, which bumphead parrotfish are about six feet, five to six feet in length. Um, and so it, you get to see these huge fish, um, you know, go from the bottom of the ocean floor, shoot to the surface and release their eggs. It's just absolutely incredible. And then, um, you know, to see a fish be able to, a giant fish be able to swim that fast to the point where you're kicking as hard as you can and you still can't even keep up with these these animals. It's just amazing. Um, And uh, Blackwater night dives, um, it's amazing. Tons of Racks and walls, everything you could ever want is, like, right there. Now, where's Palau located? Um, it's near Guam. Um, it's kind of, it, it's a little bit out of the way. It's a little bit difficult to get to. It took us about, I think it was about 26 hours of flying time to get over there. Um, we had to go from here to L.A. to um, the South Korean airport um, to another airport, and then finally take a jumper plane to get to Palau. So um, it's uh, quite a long haul to get there.
1: Any of your luggage get misplaced in the check-on, or did you just do all carry-on?
0: Um, well, uh, I, I have all my camera stuff. I, I bought a special bag for it to put all my underwater equipment and everything important in my life uh, in that bag. The only problem is, is these international flights, they only let you have 15 pounds total. Yeah. And my bag was 30. So at one point, um, when we were in the, I think it was when we were in the, when we were in the Korean airport. Um, they had all of these scales that they would set up. You're waiting this huge line to get on the airline. It was with uh, China Airlines, And they, ha- they would start bringing around these scales to, um, check people's luggage. And, uh, so what I ended up doing is I kind of hid my bag, like, behind my leg.
1: That's risky to do in South Korea.
0: Yeah. I mean, clearly it's
1: not North Korea, but, it, you know, I've never traveled abroad, but I always see these shows, you know, where horrible things happen in in other countries with their different laws and, you know, dealing with um, a police force from another nation can sometimes be rather scary and uh, tricky to maneuver, especially with the language barrier. And so here you are st- strategically hiding luggage because of the weight but if someone were to have seen you do that, maybe they would think that you are doing it because you were smuggling something else, and that could have gotten to a a long, drawn-out, confusing situation.
0: Yeah, it really wasn't one of my finest moments. Um, The other thing they have you do is they have you go to a checkout counter before you get in line, and they have to weigh your baggage there as well. So I also kind of hid my baggage while that was happening, and they give you a wristband. I found a wristband on the ground somebody had... Thrown off, uh, thrown away, and so I kind of took that and like uh, stuck it on my wrist, and so the whole thing. You know, I don't know if I would ever do it again, but you know, it, they they'll take your luggage. They don't care what's in it. They'll put it in the hold, and it, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have sure. in your. You're just a rich American to them. They don't care. <laughs> yeah, you, you
1: kind of remind me of the ski bum who shows up at the uh, ski resort three hours before closing, looking around the parking lot for a lift ticket. Someone deep sixth so they can get a free ride
0: <laughs> yeah, true. Yep, yeah pretty much yeah
1: and so you're down in that area and you discover that uh, there's a rich history from World War II amongst those atolls and those islands and those diving areas um, what were you quick to discover or did you know before you got down there
0: honestly I, I didn't know anything about the Battle of Telilu um, you know I, I didn't even know that that was that that island was an important you know it had been an important battle in World War two. And I didn't even realize that they had a tour until about the third day in. And, you know, we thought, oh, sure, why not? You know, we can take a day off from diving and kind of, um, you know, get rid of some of the nitrogen in our system. Um, And uh, this trip, by the way, I ended up um, winning this trip from a uh, a lotto. I just signed up with my email. Wow, that uh, actually
1: works? I always just assume that's the way to get your email address on a spam list.
0: No, no. Yeah, it worked. And it it wasn't a, you know, a kitschy like little hole in the wall place either. I mean, they sent you on a beautiful liveaboard. I had to pay for the flight tickets, um, but everything else, you know, food, drinks, everything else was taken care of. So, um, you know, it it, again, I don't know who I uh, made happy in my last life to be able to to go on the trip. But um, but yeah, so. Uh, when we got there, you know, we did. We we ended up signing up for the tour, and um, the crazy thing is, is the day before we did the tour, we ended up diving right off the tip of Peleliu Island. So when we came uh, to the surface, we were able to see the point where they have this big, beautiful war memorial um, in coral, and they have all these coral rocks, and there's these waves crashing, and it's kind of a little bit intimidating, you know, when you're seeing it from the water. Sure. But, um, but yeah, so when we, when we ended up going on the tour, uh, I'm a pretty empathetic person and I was able to really look at the situation from the viewpoint, uh, of the, the soldier that was out there. Um, and, uh, so when they walked us uh, through it, basically what they told us is, um, you know, their, the idea was they knew that the Japanese had made, had used the airstrip on this island. Um, My understanding is that the Japanese had enslaved the um, Palauan people,
1: Uh
0: and uh, the U.S. forces wanted to get on this island, uh, you know, to use it as a strategic point for them during the war. They thought it would take four days. Uh, They wanted to go in and just blast the heck out of this island and uh, move in. But what ended up happening is they blasted this island. They used everything they had just completely leveled it there was like no trees or vegetation left and then when they moved in they discovered that the Japanese um had been situated in a series of caves this huge underground cave network on the island so the only thing that they did (laughs) was basically take away any sort of um tree coverage Mm -hmm. they might have had so they were completely left out in the open which is you know if you ever go there I mean it makes Florida look like a cool dry place you know it's super hot humid all the time
1: well that's what i was going to ask you um obviously as someone like i spend all my time researching the uh, pacific theater of operations obviously i've seen the hbo's rendition of uh, you know the pacific and all the work they did and and you said it perfectly i think up to a week maybe two weeks before we even landed we just the navy just shelled the holy hell out of that place thinking that we'll just clear out the bunkers and this and that and the other but because of the Type of soil and well coral for that matter that makes up these atolls, and the fact that the Japanese had occupied them for so long and had the ability to bring and reinforce concrete, rebarb and just use the natural resources as well. I'm sure um, if you would have known the history before you got there, once you sat foot on that island and looked around at how thick the coral and the um, the vegetation that makes up that atoll, you're like, oh, I get it now. This is stuff is harder than concrete, the natural stuff, let alone once you start adding the reinforced concrete to it, it, it probably would make it uh, the realization of what they were going through that much more clear to you.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, another thing that I thought was really interesting is the dive that we had done the day before, um, that was the most insane uh, ripping current I've ever experienced in my entire life. Uh, I guess three of the largest uh, ocean currents in the world converged there, mm-hmm. my understanding. And so when we got in the water, it was right you know, right off the tip of Palulu, it was so strong, you know, it just blew us back you know, a couple hundred feet, and I had to go to the bottom and grip the sand to stop from flying away. You know, the people around me were shooting to the surface. It was just a mess. So I can imagine that, you know, even with the currents that they had on that island, it, you know, just getting their ships around and, you know, getting these guys onto the island must have just been absolute absolute hell, you know, with with all this crazy stuff going on in this island so well you got the name um, you know you,
1: you have the guys from the navy trying to land these landing crafts fighting in that you know that rip current trying to get to their exact destination so that each platoon arrives and each battalion arrives at their designated spot so they can bring on the advance not only are they fighting that but then you have you know shells coming in from the other way could you imagine your landing craft getting hit 200 yards off of shore and trying to swim with boots, oh. rifle pack helmet. Only thing you have on is a, oh, God. The only thing they had <laughs> they... even resembling a um, life preserver, which the Marines really didn't use that much. We saw them a lot on D-Day in Europe was a belt that if you didn't have it high enough underneath your armpit, um, what they discovered on D-Day when the army landed in Normandy is a lot of the guys were them too low. And when they inflate them, they just flip over and then they were, they were stuck. And so, not only are you fighting wow. the Japanese and the bullets and the and the barrage, but you're also fighting a natural current, and that's one of the other things that it's hard for a person to comprehend when watching, especially a TV show. Um, a lot, a lot of the books, a lot of the bi- biographies, whether it's E.B. Sledges or um, anybody like uh, Robert Lecky, Sidney Phillips, any of those, they do a good job of explaining the battle with nature and in the hbo show the pacific they kind of covered they covered it quite a bit and also covered the dysentery and the diarrhea and all the uncomforts of being a human out in nature but i don't think unless you've actually set foot on that atoll or in that area and felt the humidity and the heat like you said it made florida seem like a nice california day could you imagine being out in that 24 hours a day with no water because um, the water the water cans that came in early on during the invasion of Pelalu turns out was not cleaned properly. They were originally used as gasoline and oil cans. And so all the water right. was basically uh, contaminated. And the Japanese, I don't know if they planned ahead or if they did it the night before or whenever they got word that the invasion was happening. I, I tend to believe that it probably happened way before that. The few natural wells that they did have, they would pollute with um, animal carcasses to create dysentery because you know the advantage they had obviously one having reinforced bunkers but two having shade i mean you can survive that temperature a lot longer in the shade without water than you can like you said once the navy wiped out all the vegetation you're basically it's it would be like uh i don't know spending three weeks on the 405 out in california in the hot sun on the concrete all day
0: honestly i'm i'm actually incredibly impressed that anyone survived at all i mean just even being there in the shade, it's, you know, you're just drenched in sweat, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, it just, when they, we went to, they have a little museum there, and they had the um, Thousand Yard Stair painting, uh-huh. and that pretty much said it all, you know, the look in the soldier's eyes, it's like, you can just picture when you go there how, I mean, it, it must have felt like the surface of Mars, you know, you have all this hard, rocky coral, and then there's all these bombs, you know, hidden in the ground, and then, you're out there for they thought it was going to take um four days but it ended up taking about three or four months is that correct
1: two months one week five days we landed on september 15th and we left on uh, the 27th of november and for those of you who are listening along at home who aren't exactly familiar with the logistics and or the statistics of the battle for Peleliu, uh units involved was the third amphibious corps on the uh, united states side including the first marine division the 81st Infantry Division from the Army plus some other units, CBs, and what have you. A total combined strength on the Allied side of 47,561. Casualties and losses on our side, 10,786. That breaks down to 2,336 killed and 8,450 8, wounded. On the Japanese wow. side, they had um, the 14th Infantry Division, the 49th Mixed Brigade, the 45th Guard Force, and a 46 base force plus additional units. Their strength was 10,900, including 17 tanks. So just by numbers and strength alone, we, we outnumbered them. But with that being said, they had 10,695 killed, 202 captured, 183 of those were foreign laborers. So as you said at the beginning at the top of this interview, the Japanese were known for uh, forced labor, much like the Germans were. And so, out of the when I first read 202 captured, I'm like, well, that's staggering because the Japanese are raised to believe their job is to kill ten Marines before they lose their life. Their their job is to die, wow. and never to surrender. But it made sense once they broke that down to 130, 183 of them were actually foreign um, foreign workers, and all 17 tanks were lost.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I know. Uh to this day, the the Palawan people they love Americans. It's one of the few places I've been to where they love Americans. They use U.S. currency. Um, I believe English is their main language. Uh, everyone speaks English, and you know, it's, there's just a real sense that um, of of gratefulness on their side. I know that when after the the battle was over, the Americans went in and um, uh, rebuilt the entire island, and uh, to this day. Um, you know, we give them quite a bit of foreign aid, but, uh, I mean, I would move there if I could, (laughs) but fortunately, you, you know, you can only do a land lease. You you can't actually, foreigners can't actually, um, buy land. But, um, but yeah, that, that was one of the things that I really appreciated about it was just, you know, how welcoming the people are, you know, they don't look at you like you're trash, you know, they welcome you and accept you into their, into their Island. They're glad that you're there, you know, kind of the
1: thing you're talking about the rebuilding and the aid, um, you know, we know in Europe it was a little different, but one of the things that shocked me when I was reading um, E.B. Sledges with the Old Breed, his last battle was on Okinawa before he, um, he got sent home. And he was saying in his book, once they um, took Okinawa, they got to the other island and captured it, and we finally said, okay, it's secure. Those guys were told, okay, turn around, walk the other way, and start cleaning up. Anything larger than a 30 caliber shell casing, pick it up, marshal it up, throw it away, bury the dead Japanese. And so here's guys who spent days, some of weeks, not only on that particular months, not only on that particular location, but a lot of these guys have been fighting for three years, and they basically get to the other side of the island, and now they're on trash duty and pick up. Now a lot of it obviously is make work, but you know, much like we have a tendency, of once we bomb a village, we'll contribute to the reconstruction i guess someone felt it was our turn to clean up the jungle when we're done so these poor guys had to about face turn around and start cleaning up the battlefield and burying soldiers that's been laying around for weeks and just that had to be really disheartening or almost like are you kidding me everything i've been through now i got to turn around and and clean this up it's just that was just a little surprising to me that's something else you rarely hear about
0: you know i think i read that unbroken book and uh mm-hmm. and also just from doing the tour it really hits you in the face with how much these guys did you know how how much they suffered and and just sacrificed and like you know our current generation has no idea that kind of suffering i mean you know it's it's a good thing and a bad thing i think people just really take it for granted and you know i i, I mean i i will never ever experience anything even close to that
1: then we're thankful for it i mean as somebody who studies this, you know, these conflicts as much as I do and participate in living history events and reenacting events, I never pretend like I remotely know what these guys went through, and I'm thankful that I never have to experience the horrors of war. Um, you know, I can say I've walked a mile in their boots because I have, and, you know, I, I've camped out on the ground, but even that, even a worse weekend of camping is nothing compared to anything remotely. And so I'm, I'm always so thankful that, you know, I will never have to experience that God willing. And, and like you said, it's, that's something that's so hard to get across and not to be, to beat a dead horse over the last couple episodes. Cause I've been interviewing some veterans the last two episodes. But one of the things I, I constantly marvel at is those guys were so damn young. Sydney Phillips yeah. turned 17 years old on Guadalcanal. These are high wow. school kids. These are, college freshmen if you were 21 23 25 at the time you're considered an old man let alone in your 30s or 40s forget about it and i often joke that you know our world was saved by you know a generation of high school kids and college kids 16 and 17 year olds where you can't even get a 17 year old to mow the grass on a hot day nowadays without getting a (laughs) sigh and a whole lot of complaints
0: you know those guys were true badasses you know even my grandpa, you know he he uh, dug the foundation for his own house when he was eighty five you know he uh, you know he was still lifting weights, he was still super strong when he was in his 90s you know these guys they they were just just true badasses, you know they went out they did what they had to do, they didn't complain about it and you know I just think it's so important that people read about this stuff and understand it for the future and and understand you know, this is, what, this is what you have to do when a country goes through something like this. You, know, you just have to pick up, go out, do your duty, keep your head down, get the job done, and, you know, and try to make it out as, as best you can. You know? um, but uh, the other really interesting part about going in on this island at the tour was um, we went into these caves. And uh, you, know, you walk around, and there's like thousands of sake bottles. Everywhere, still littered, all over the ground. And it's interesting, like, I was, I was making this joke. Um, if this if this same island, say it was uh, in America, you know, in a national park, they would never let you get away with some of the stuff that they do there. You know, the tour guide is walking around these Japanese bombers and these tanks and stuff that are rusted out that are still there. And you can just, there's no, uh, you know, do not cross lines or signs. You just go up and you just pick up, you know, pieces, parts and pieces of this stuff everywhere. And, um, you know, it's it's just really interesting. It's like, a, it's a completely different thing over there. Um, and, uh, and the other cool thing is going into these caves, um, they have, uh, I can't remember the name of the bat, but it's a specific type of bat. I believe it's in to the islands, and they have... Uh, we got to see these, these bats in this cave where we would go through this cave and they turn the lights out and it's still so black, you know, you can't see your hand in, in front of your face. And all of a sudden they turn the lights on and these bats just start going crazy all around you. <laughs> um, you know, but my, my understanding too is the way that they won the war is because I think they've, the way they built these caves is at an angle so that, um, you know, any sort of uh, fire from these bombs, that couldn't get very far into the cave,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and so they they ended up going through with a flamethrower, which is awful, but uh, you know they that's how they ended up uh, winning over the island.
1: Yeah, what we would do is we would send out a demolition crew. One guy would have a flamethrower, the other guy would have a pack of a uh, composition C or whatever um, TNT and explosion. And yeah, you're absolutely correct. One of the things they they found out when, you know, when they started landing on Guadalcanal and Peleliu and Tarawa and all that, you would throw a bomb or a satchel into these bunkers and it would blow up. And you'd be like, okay, well, no one can survive that. But what we found after we cleared the first couple of them were is they had them partitioned off with concrete walls so that if you threw a bomb through window A, it would blow up within that room. Yes. You'd give everybody a hell of a headache. And if the compression didn't kill them, the shrapnel wouldn't either because the shrapnel would just hit the wall and the guy in the next compartment You know, as long as the compression didn't kill him, he was able, you know, once he shook the cobwebs out of his head, he was able to at least try to fight and defend themselves or at least try to escape. And so that's when we started bringing in the flamethrowers. And so the flamethrower, you know, it was a weapon of three phases, if you will. Uh, First and foremost, obviously the fire. So you go into the cave, you'd light it up with the fire and flames. And um, if that didn't burn you and the the fire didn't kill you, the heat would get you obviously but more I don't know if important is the word but kind of gruesome as well is if you're in a large cave or bunker that was enclosed and didn't have enough opening to compensate for the amount of um, oxygen the flame would use you would actually suffocate to death and then so once they went in there at the flamethrower lit it up either burnt you caught you on fire or suffocated you we'd bring in a guy with the demolition charges to blow o- blow shut the opening of the cave and or bunker so that you are if you were still alive, no one can get to you to render aid or you'd just be entombed inside of this case forever. And sadly, there's reports of, a famous report, and I feel bad because I wasn't planning on this part of the conversation, so I didn't have time to get the gentleman's name. There's a famous reporter who was attached to, I think, the first, it may have been the 5th Marine Division, who basically um, got lost in a cave. He went in there from something happened. Um, turns out there are some Japanese in there and we had no choice but to blow the cave shut, and he he was lost
0: in there. Wow. You know, the the other thing they told us that was really interesting, too, is apparently there was a gentleman, uh, I think he was a, on the Japanese side. Um, he was stuck. He survived the attack, and he was in this cave, uh, I think, until 1947, and he thought that the war was still going on. And every time there was a plane that would fly overhead, um, you know, he, he would kind of, fire back with whatever ammo he had left over. And uh, they ended up having to come in and, and they eventually got him out of there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I imagine, I can't imagine how messed up you'd be still thinking for that many years that the war is still going on and, you know, just being terrified you're going to lose your life at any point.
1: January 17, so, 2004, dateline uh, from BBC.com. Japanese World War Two soldier who refused to surrender, hero. Uh, Onoda, forgive me for that. O n o d a Onoda died. So he died in 2014. The Japanese soldier who refused to surrender after World War II ended spent 29 years in the jungle. Has died at the age of 91 in Tokyo. Hero uh, remains in the um, hero remained in the jungle of Labang Island near Luzon in the Philippines until 1974 because he did not believe the war had ended. Wow. He was finally persuaded to emerge after his aging former commanding officer was flown to see him. Correspondents say he was greeted as a hero upon his return to Japan. As World War II neared its end, Mr. Ando, then a lieutenant, became cut off on Lebang Bang as U.S. troops came north. The young soldier had orders not to surrender and... Com- and uh, I'm sorry, uh, the young soldier had orders not to surrender, a command he obeyed for nearly three decades. Quote, every Japanese soldier was prepared for death, but as intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not die, he told ABC in an interview in 2010. I became an, uh, an officer and I received an order. If I could not carry it out, I would feel shame, and I'm very competitive, he added. While on LeBang Island, Mr. Ando surveyed military facilities and engaged in sporadic clashes with local residents. Three other soldiers were were with him at, his, at the end of the war. One emerged from the jungle in 1950, and the other two died. One in, 1970, one in a 1972 clash with local troops. So these guys continued fighting with anybody who presented any sort of authoritarian over them up until 74. I mean, that was four years before I was born that this guy finally surrendered after being in the woods since probably early 1942 that just shows you the amount of dedication and not to be rude but a little bit of brainwashing that went on amongst the empire.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, if you, if you read that unbroken book, I mean, these guys were totally brainwashed, you know, I mean the fact that they, you know, committed suicide, if they, you know, even suspected that they had, that they was lost, you know, I mean, that just goes to show the kind of power that has over a person. Um, and uh you know, the other really interesting thing too is the amount of uh of planes that are sunk all over the all over the islands of Palau that are still um, you know, you can go and dive and uh go inside of these airplanes, these aircraft and you know, they're just littered and I think they're still finding um different uh aircraft. Oh they, I would imagine. Yeah. And I'm sure they'll they'll continue to for years. Um but it's a really interesting place. I mean, you know, I'm glad that, uh, you know, they've been able to really turn that island into, you know, a tourism diving, you know, destination. I mean, uh, you go there, it's they have the best conservation practices of any island in the Indo-Pacific region. You know, they completely banned shark fishing. Um, the What they had found out, I think it was maybe 20 well somewhere around there uh there were a couple of um chinese fishing vessels that they had caught in the islands off palau and uh they took all the fishermen off and they burned the boat on the sea just to make a statement that we do not want any commercial fishing here so um it's just a yeah it's just a really really incredible place you know there's 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 no place else i think that exists that has as much to see you know as this place there's a an area we went diving at um, called the blue corner. And because the currents are so crazy, you use a leaf hook and you hook into um, areas where there's rock or dead coral on the bottom and you just kind of float there, you know, and from the bottom of uh, we were there for a while and we didn't really see much, but from the bottom of this wall, all these black tip sharks just started coming to the surface. And, you know, I was probably six feet away from hundreds of these black tip sharks and you know they're just kind of cruising they're just they look at you they don't you know they don't really care you're there um and then i turned around and there was like a huge school of barracuda Uh-oh. and then i turn around and then there's like a manta ray you it's know like West Side story. <laughs> like Crazy. what how,
1: um, how deep are you certified to dive
0: um, i've been the deepest i've gone is 130 i don't really do the deep stuff anymore um you know i tend to just kind of stick to the more shallow stuff just because it's, it fits more with my shooting style I like to go and get you know the sunsets on the water and uh you know I feel like there's a lot you can stay you know at 20 feet you can stay stay down for like an hour and 15 minutes if you want so um I like that a lot better than doing these repetitive dives where you're going down to a hundred feet 90 feet 80 feet and you can only go down for you know, a short period of time before you have to resurface. So, um, there though, it's very advanced diving. Everything is deep. Everything is insane. (laughs) Like, you know, you've got, um, it's not, it's, it's not Caribbean, nice, easy diving. You know, you're there to work, you know? I mean, we were doing three to four dives a day, um, you know, trying to, kick in these crazy currents to keep up with everything i had all my camera stuff which is you know 30 pounds underwater trying to carry this stuff in these currents you know i think i probably lost like 10 pounds (laughs) you know so um you know by the time we got done with our diving and everything there i mean we were just spent for like a couple weeks i actually ended up in the hospital when i came home um because my electrolytes were so low (laughs) so yeah there's um, no
1: 7-elevens to pick up a gatorade at while you're there Which kind of leads me into my next question. How is the, I guess first and foremost, the economy and second, the accommodations. If someone were planning to go down, whether they're a World War II aficionado or they enjoy diving. If someone was trying to plan to make this trip, should they um, set the expectations of roughing it a bit and, uh, you know, dealing with nature? Or are there places that have the A.C. and, you know, the luxury beds and and fine dining? Or is it more like a... um, you know, it's more going to be more like a camping trip.
0: You know, it's a little bit of both. Um, I've been to uh, Belize. I thought Belize was was way worse on the scale in terms of, you know, you see people living in cardboard houses and, you know, it's just, it's, it's a lot of shocking conditions that people live in and it's really sad. Um, but then, you know, you also have your resorts. This is kind of, I thought this was a lot more even keel. You know, obviously you're going to go, there's not a ton of places with the air conditioning. It's, you know, it's very warm. Um, we were on a live aboard, which means they have the, it's with the, the pullout siren. Mm-hmm. Uh, the siren ships, they have ships like all over the Indo-Pacific, um, but uh, they have this huge, beautiful ship. And even, even with that, and you have this incredible, you know, we had an Indian chef. He was making his Indian curry every day. I was like, awesome. But, you know, you still have uh, the main room where everybody goes and hangs out and where you set up all your equipment. There's no air conditioning. You know, it's you just have to expect that you're going to go and be really warm <laughs> the whole time. Um, you know, but, I mean, everything is pretty, you know, it's not like they have a Howard Johnson there. The resorts, you know, there's resorts there. It depends on how much money you have. Sure. If you're looking for something uh, a little bit less expensive, you know, I thought there were some really good options. We stayed in a hotel when we first got there and, you know, it wasn't, it was no frills, but, you know, it was clean. It was right on the water. Um, You know, I've also gotten to go to Indonesia um, and uh, it was in North Sulawesi. India or Indonesia is crazy. Like, There's people, you know, at the marina, they're like slaughtering pigs. Like, I'm not joking. (laughs) There's trash everywhere in the ocean. This was not like that. Um, The thing that I will say that I was very disappointed with, which is uh, this is happening across the board, and apparently Palau is not nearly as bad as some other areas, is, you know, and I hate to say it, the Chinese tourists that go there, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but they just really don't have a ton of respect for the reef. Uh, There's a huge issue with all of the dive operations there, trying to get people under control. We saw people standing on coral. We saw people, you know, touching coral. We saw people just, uh, you know, when we were going to see the bumphead parrotfish spawning, you know, there was um, a couple of divers that, uh, were from a Chinese cruise ship and they would just go straight into where the fish were disturbing their mating. And then also, you know, making the fish leave so that nobody else could enjoy it. Just, you know, a lot of bad behavior.
1: Well, um, I don't think the, uh, fine government, the fine communist government of China spends a whole lot of money and time and energy on, you know, their equivalent of Woodsy, the owl and, um, Smokey, the bear and teaching, <laughs> you know, the proper procedures and handling of, um, going out in nature they're more focused on uh trying to keep their their people under their thumb and make them believe that they have have uh, more freedoms than they actually do but you're talking yeah and i and i
0: understand go ahead oh and i understand too you know if you grow up in this country where you are surrounded by thousands and thousands of people every single day it's like you know you're just trying to go and, you know, get whatever you can, you know, you go to a store, it's like, you know, you're just, I can imagine the kind of pressure that the people feel from, from experiencing that, you know, and then that translates to when they go overseas and do vacations and stuff, so.
1: Well, you're talking about how some some of these places, the litter and all that's extremely dirty. If you go on YouTube and you look up this um, documentary, it's all right, but it's called "The Return to Tarawa," and one of the uh, young men who was... Commanding or driving one of the coxswains who was driving a landing craft during the invasion of Tarawa, which was 75 years ago last year, so six, 76 years ago to, uh, this year. He went back and he was dismayed how bad Red Beach won and all the landing beaches are diapers everywhere, trash, and they're just com- you know, these islands. And Tarawa was one of the most bloody battles, or one of them for the Marines. And because of the, huh. um, the nape tide, got a lot of the landing craft stuck on the reef, and these guys had to. You know, run a thousand yard. Well, wade a thousand yards in while getting shot at. But and then the oh atoll is so small. To this day, whenever a commercial or anyone breaks ground for construction, they're constantly p- recovering bodies. I mean, every almost every month, they're they're recovering lost Marines who were never recovered from back then. And but it's just the economy and the government's so poor, and the United States government lends so little help, and what help does get lent probably gets misappropriated. That in this documentary, you know, this gentleman, he comes up with a plan. He tried to get, uh, I think Bush was in office at the time. That's how long this this documentary was. But he, I think he was trying to get them to finance a uh, rendering plant or recycling plant to help keep the beaches clean. And But it's just sad how, and you know, you can't blame the local people, local government, because their economy is so poor they can't afford to build those places. But you could, you know, teach your people to, you know, use trash cans and all that, but... Once again, they're, they're struggling to take care of their families that they, that's the low on their priority list. And, and I hear that, you know, a lot of those places are like that. It's just, you know, a lot of trash. And when you're there in Peleliu, did you go to the airport? Is that, do you know if that airport is the same location as the original one?
0: Um, I'm not sure. We, we didn't go to the airport. We tried to stay. They have a specific path that they take you because I know there's still a lot of, um, bombs that are buried everywhere um but um but yeah, as, as far as I know it's it's still there um you know but uh, but like I said I mean the trash in, in Palau they do a really really good job I mean they've they've made sure that you know they want to keep that as a tourist destination that's where they make the majority of their money um the crazy thing is is when we were there they were having the worst drought they had had in it was over a hundred years
1: wow. and
0: luckily the, the boat we were on had a you know they, they had a saltwater converter or whatever. So they were, you know, we had plenty of fresh water. But by the time we got off the boat, um, there was a, you know, we were supposed to fly out and there was a resort there um, that we were going to go and just kind of hang out at and get lunch. And they would closed it down because they said, you know, we have no fresh water to give tourists. And, you know, we started going to some of the, you know, the local, um, the different buildings that were there. And, uh, they just had buckets of water that were filled up and that was their water, you know, for the next, however many months. Um, there's an, a lake there. It's very famous. It's called jellyfish Lake. Um, it's known for, I guess, thousands of years ago, some jellyfish entered into this lake. Um, and then, you know, something happened, the lake closed off. And so these jellyfish were stuck in this lake. Um, but over thousands of years, they've been able to develop where they have no stinging cells. Um,
1: no, comp- and, uh, no competitors, uh, no uh, predators,
0: no predators. It's it's literally just jellyfish wow. in this lake, um, and you know you can touch them. I think supposedly they have some stinging cells, but it's so it, you know it's it's so small, like sure. it, you know you can't feel the
1: equivalent it. of a fire um, ant.
0: <laughs> What's that?
1: So the equivalent of a fire ant bite.
0: Yeah. Well. Oh no, no, not even. I mean, you know, you can touch them. You don't feel anything, and. Um, but, you know, when we were there, uh, you know, and it's crazy, you have to go up these concrete stairs that are covered in algae. You have to go up a 100 of these, and then you have to go down a 100 of those. And then you have to swim, I think it was at least half a mile to get to the other side of the lake where the jellyfish were at. They told us none of this before, <laughs> before we did this. So I had my 30-pound camera that I'm trying to, like, you let's know, guess, let's carry up there.
1: They want that money. They don't want to deter you from coming.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and there's like no railing. But you know, but it's it's worth it when you get down there. But um right after we left, a week after we left, they closed the lake down because uh the drought was so severe the jellyfish died. Ugh. And um they ended up not opening it for another three years. So I was like I felt very grateful that we were able to go and experience that, you know. Um but um but yeah, they were they were trying to get a um, water from other countries. And it, it was just a mess. Um, you know, so, so that's the other thing is, you know, if you go to some of these places, you really just need to do your research ahead of time, you know, um, figure out, you know, if I forbid, what happens if I'm there and there's some kind of natural disaster. I mean, you know, I always use, um, Dan, uh, divers alert network insurance. They also have travel insurance. Um, that's great because if you, you don't, I don't even think you necessarily need to be a diver. I'm not positive about that, but um, you know, if you hurt, say you cut your foot, you know, and it gets infected, they will helicopter you out to um, the nearest hospital. You know, sometimes you're in these locations where if you get decompression sickness, the nearest deco chamber is, you know, 400 miles away or something crazy you know you know it's like sure you you need to uh to be able to have access to aircraft that'll get you to some of these areas so well i um, think it's a
1: good tip i don't think a lot of people consider um travel insurance especially when they go abroad but you know when you're going to a let's be honest a third world country where um or you're going to places in those countries that are even further out where you know it's going to take you a two-hour boat ride Back and hopefully you're not in a position where you have a broken bone, because that's going to be a very uncomfortable ride, Um, yeah, it probably would behoove you to pay the couple hundred bucks, whatever it is, to uh, get that insurance in case, especially if you're out diving or rock climbing or doing anything that has an inherent risk to it, um, because finding yourself in a position like that with no way to get adequate uh, care is uh, definitely going to ruin your vacation and possibly your life
0: yeah and it's it's totally worth it, and it's not even that expensive. I think we spent an extra one hundred and fifty dollars for the travel insurance, and um you know, and I insure all my equipment and everything too um, but um but yeah, so i would I would recommend anyone you know you're gonna be roughing in a little bit if you go to Palau, lower your expectations a little bit, but you know what you get in exchange is is completely worth it, you know, especially if you do the tours. It was incredible. I mean, I learned so much, I had so much more respect for what went on on that island you know it completely opened my eyes to oh my god i i I don't even understand i've never been anything anything you know even close to that situation like you know wow i just it just it it blew my mind it was it was just amazing so
1: as you're traveling around the the more dense populated areas i guess the villages the towns and the cities are there still remnants of the war or is most of that in your experience out in the um outskirts and the boonies a little bit more, have they cleaned up a lot of stuff in the developed areas or do they still
0: use those kind of monuments? No, I mean, really, the only evidence you saw was on Peleliu. And we didn't really do a ton of stuff that was land-based just because there's really nothing to do. You know, if you go there, uh, you know, you go there to dive pretty much. Um, So, you know, but it was interesting, you know, you go and they have a museum, they have um, the big memorial on the point. Um, you know, the, the tour, the tour took us all day long to do, you know, I think there's only 70 people that live on Peleliu. So, you know, it's, that's pretty much the whole, the whole island is, is just dedicated to the war, you know, it's, um, it's really incredible. And the fact that they've kept all this stuff, uh, you know, they haven't tried to move the bombers or, you know, erase any of that history. Um, you know, I thought, I thought that it was it was good that they did that as well. You know, people need to remember this stuff.
1: So, well, your homework assignment is to go on YouTube tonight and look for HBO The Pacific Pelaloon air, Pelaloon, Pelaloo Airport scene, and uh, because famously, because it is an air, the runway, there's not the vegetation was cleared out around it, and so the Japanese were set up in the bunker, the, well, what was left of the two-story building after getting the hell bombed out of it, and the Marines, in order to Get to them had to run across, I think, a thousand, maybe two thousand yards of open land in the heat. Oh, wow. Uh, with no, no water. Um, like, I think it was like on day three after they made their way through the island. And they just basically had to haul ass, an equivalent to what, a couple of football fields and just run, run, run and, and hope not to get shot. And they, um, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg did a great job on recreating that scene. Um, in the show, the HBS Pacific, and it, that scene itself is on YouTube. It's like four minutes long, but check that out if you want to oh. get an idea of what those guys get, went through. And uh, go ahead.
0: Oh yeah, no, I will definitely check that out. Uh, yeah, I didn't even know that was out there. So yeah, I would love to see that.
1: I have the box set of the DVD. I'll, I'll let you watch it. Haney actually got it for me when I first started uh, producing their show. Um, And for those of you who are going to be in the Fort Morgan, Alabama area or want to drive down to Fort Morgan, Alabama if you're up north or want to drive up if you're down south, November 1st and 2nd is the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Peleliu. And on the same location that we had the 75th anniversary of the Terrawit landings, we are going to have a full-scale living history event and reenactment. I think there are currently 150 reenactors which is big for a second-year event. We did the first one last year. Uh, This year, obviously, is our second one, and we're doing Peleliu. And we're going to have CBs out there, uh, women who are representing Army nurses, and obviously, I'm sorry, Navy nurses, and obviously those of us representing the United States Marine Corps, and we're going to have a good time. Uh, We are looking forward to Friday night or Saturday night, we're actually going to do a nighttime battle, which is very rare in those sort of situations. Um, but not only could you come down and enjoy and view the spectacle that we're going to do, and you can learn more about uh, Peleliu because after the battle and before the battle, obviously you can walk through our bivouacs and see our tents and our uniforms and all that. But Fort Morgan itself is a beautiful, beautiful piece of property. The fort is still there as you're driving down this, you know, peninsula because the, I'm sorry, the fort, basically after you drive through the panhandle of Florida, you're there, you're in Fort Morgan, Alabama. The views are beautiful. The town's beautiful. The fort itself, the land, the, the national park, it's, all the batteries are still there. Basically, the buildings, you're looking at 150-year-old brick. Um, it's amazing just the, what they were able to do with the, um, the masonry back then. So that's November 1st and 2nd, Fort Morgan, Alabama. Uh, you can find more information at what's whatsthescuttlebutt.com and on our Facebook page. Katie Morris, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, sharing your adventure going down, uh, underwater diving and your experience. It's interesting to get the, um, experience and, inter- uh, perspective, if you will, from someone who really doesn't spend all their time dedicated to world war two, most of our guests on here do that. And so, um, one kudos to you on your memory and whatever research you did afterwards, because you seem to know a lot on, uh, the information you uh, shared with us on the show today, but thank you for everything. And uh, I hope you have another adventurous dive coming up soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. No, I, I I really appreciate you having me on. I, I love to talk about this stuff. I'll talk about anything diving related. I mean, if you have a whole three hour show, I will talk about it (laughs) for three hours. So, you know, so yeah, thanks for having me on, you know. Um, And again, I just really wanted to get across the point that, um, if there's anyone out there who wants to have some really serious appreciation for these World War II vets, you know, or any vet, please, like, go and do research on the battle. It will completely change everything that you thought about what these men had to go through. So,
1: And I think I couldn't put a finer point on that, and that's the perfect way to end this interview. So, Katie, thank you so much for your time, and best of luck in all of your endeavors.
0: Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot.
1: Has been a digital four ten production <laughs>